gauging, but he was also signaling how, with that cliched twinkle, that his good behavior, his forbearance, had its limits. At the time, I'd read only a few dozen Updike stories and a couple of the novels. When I finally read his memoirs, I found this apposite passage about an earlier trip to a Midwestern university. I read and talked into the microphone and was gracious to the local rich, the English faculty and the college president, and the students with their clear skin and shining eyes and inviting innocence, like a blank surface one wishes to scribble obscenities on. Suspicion confirmed. Of course there was an undercurrent of aggression in all that expertly deployed charm, a razor edge to his ostensibly gentle wit. In one of the dazzling self-interviews with his alter ego Henry Beck, he lamented his own eagerness to please, and ridiculed the whole notion that a writer should be nice. As Norman Mailer pointed out decades ago, and Philip Roth not long afterwards, niceness is the enemy. Every soft stroke from society is like the pft of an aerosol can as it eats up a few more atoms of our brain's delicate ozone and furthers our personal cretinization. A nice, happy author? No thanks. I found I liked him all the more. It's possible, I suppose, that I was programmed to like him. My father and he were classmates in college, both of them majoring in English, and for a while after graduation, when my parents were living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Updike and his first wife had moved to Ipswich, less than an hour away, the two couples were friendly. Fifty years later, when Updike died unexpectedly, very few people knew that he was ill, let alone dying, my father sent me an email version of an anecdote I'd heard before. One day, for some reason, John came to see us alone in the early afternoon. We were in our living room, which was flooded by the afternoon sun. You were in your easy chair, a contraption in universal use then among advanced couples, which allowed the pre-toddler to recline rather as though he were in a barber's chair having his hair shampooed. One of John's less-known talents was his skill as a juggler. He took three oranges from a bowl on the coffee table and began to juggle for you, and you began to laugh. Astonishing belly laughter. According to this family legend, Updike was the first person to make me laugh. Part of me believed it, and believed it was a natural consequence of this early imprint that I found him congenial when I met him as an adult, the baby in the easy chair having grown up to be a literary journalist. Whenever we spoke, which wasn't often, all told perhaps a dozen phone calls and two extended face-to-face interviews, I was amazed and delighted by his gracious professional manner and by the sly undercutting of his public marketable self. He wanted to let you know that he was perfectly aware of the falsity of the situation and perfectly prepared to be amused by it for the moment. He wanted to let you know that his real self was elsewhere. This wasn't just a targeted trick, like juggling for a baby, deployed for the benefit of an admiring journalist. Old friends and colleagues noticed it too. John could be funny and very friendly, said his Harvard friend Michael Arlen, but you always felt that this was just a parallel universe we were occupying for the moment. The real universe was back at his desk. Roger Angel, Updike's New Yorker fiction editor for more than thirty years, observed how, near the end of each visit to the magazine's offices, he somehow withdrew a little 
growing more private and less visible even before he turned away. Angel called it the fade-away and thought it had to do with being temporarily exiled from writing. The spacious writing part of him was held to one side when not engaged, kept ready for its engrossing daily stint back home. He was there but not there, just as he was kind but subversive, and charming but dangerous. Another confusion. Updike thought of himself, or wanted to think of himself, as a pretty average person. So he said at age forty-nine. But since childhood he'd been assured that he was exceptional, brighter and more talented than the rest. And surely he was. A drumroll of honors, prizes, and awards accompanies the very long list of his published books. Sixty-odd in fifty-one years. The list and the accolades confirm that he was indeed extraordinary.